So I've got this friend who's really bad at buying his wife gifts. In fact, there was this time on Mother's Day a couple years ago when this friend bought his wife a big, shiny barbecue grill from Lowe's. <laughs> it didn't go so well. Then there was this other time when it was my wife's birthday coming up, and I thought to myself, this one has to be good. And there was a new Apple iPad coming out for 650 bucks or so, and I thought, yeah, this is a good present. It, it, it's also shiny, which is kind of a requirement of guys. But I thought, yeah, I'm going to buy her an, an iPad. But I thought to myself, she's not going to really appreciate the value of this iPad unless I compare it to something else. So I learned this trick from her, in fact. She would often come to me and go, well, Sherwin, you know, I was looking at this pair of boots. It's going to be great for snow, and it has all these fancy features. And, you know, it's about 150 bucks. And then she go, and then, you know, she would see the look on my face. And then she'd go, but you know what? I decided to get this other pair for 75. And then I would actually be really happy that she's spending her money on shoes. So I learned that trick from her. So this time, here's what I decided to do. I said, before, I said ahead of time, Jules, I have a present for you for your birthday. You can choose. You can either get the new iPad, which is about 650 bucks, or I found this sewing machine that's on sale at Joanne's for a hundred bucks. Well, to my surprise, she chose the sewing machine, showing that men typically don't understand women, even after 10 years of marriage, <laughs> and that I had underestimated the motivations that affect her behavior. You see, my wife was now a stay-at-home mom, and she had had our, our daughter, Macy, and nap time was a time that she actually had for herself, but she had to stay at home. So a sewing machine was a perfect gift for her. And so she's loved it and used it ever since. She's made all of our nieces and nephews stuff. She's made our kids stuff. And I believe it is the same with us that we often underestimate, underestimate how our, our motivations affect our behaviors. And I want you to think for a second. What motivates you? What are the primary motivations in your life? Is it insecurity? Is it pride? Is it ambition? Is it the need to succeed? Think for a second. There's a recent article in Psychology Today that said the primary, the most important motivator in our lives is Fear. This is what it says. Nothing makes us more uncomfortable than fear. And we have so many. Fear of pain, disease, injury, failure, not being accepted, missing an opportunity, and my favorite, being scammed. Fear invokes the flight or fight syndrome. And our first reaction is always to flee back to our comfort zone. If we don't know the way back, we will likely follow whoever shows us the path. And as we look to Gideon's story today, I want to look at the fears in Gideon's lives, life. And I've picked out three fears that Gideon had and how God addressed them because those fears are very real in my life. So turn with me to Judges chapter 6. The Midians have overtaken Israel. It's harvest time 
And so the Midianites show up and they just devour everything. The Israelites have to flee every year to the hills and nothing is left for them. Finally, they cry out to God and God shows up and he's picked this guy to help deliver them. And instead of picking a soldier, he's picked a Jewish farmer named Gideon. And the first fear that we encounter in Gideon's life is Gideon saying to God, I am not enough. Let's read Judges chapter 6, 14 to 16. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Gideon says, hey, God, you picked the wrong guy. People don't even know the tribe of Manasseh. If you had picked Judah or Benjamin or Levi, everybody knows those tribes. People don't know Manasseh. And then on top of that, my clan is the weakest, and I am the youngest in my family. Gideon says, I am a nobody. I am not enough. And here is God's response to Gideon. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And if you read through scriptures, you see this pattern, this refrain that God says. When God showed up to Moses, who was in the desert looking after sheep, and says to Moses, you will deliver my people out of Egypt, what does God say to Moses when he objects? Exodus 3.12, but I will be with you. And what about to Joshua? when Moses passes away and Joshua is now the commander and he is the leader of Israel. In Joshua 1, verses 9, God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. How many people remember the name Scott O'Grady? During the Bosnian War, after the breakup of Yugoslavia, you'll remember Croatia, Serbia, Kosovo, Bosnia, it was, an, it was a mess. And the US military came in to try and settle what was going on. And at that time, Captain Scott O'Grady of the US Air Force was flying an F-16 to enforce a no-fly zone over Serbia. And as he's flying his F-16, a surface-to-air missile comes and shoots him down. And he parachutes, he ejects, and he lands in Serbia in the middle of a bunch of trigger-happy Serbian paramilitary forces. And you'll remember this story because it gripped the entire nation. For six days, he ate bugs, he collected rainwater, he evaded the forces, and he tried to make contact with the US military. And there was a lot of unknown in his story. He didn't know where his meal was going to come from. He didn't know where the safe place was. He didn't know what he was going to do. But there was one thing he knew that every other service person of the US military knows whenever they're behind military lines. You know what that is? That the US military will be coming and will be looking for you. Every serviceman knows this. We have a policy that says what? No man left behind, dead or alive we will come for you. So the one thing Scott O'Grady knowed is that he had to reveal his location to the US military because he knew they were looking for him. And I believe 
the refrain of God saying to us, I will be with you, needs to be as strong as it is for our servicemen. We need to know when we have this fear that I am not enough, I am a nobody, I can't do this. What needs to bubble up in our hearts is this refrain from God that he said to Gideon, that he said to Moses, that he said to Joshua, I will be with you. You know, as a church, we are still living out the Great Commission. And for Browncrofters, we say it like this. We're inviting people into a life-changing relationship with God. But if you, and if you look at Matthew, look at the Great Commission and look what's embedded in the Great Commission. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here it comes. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so God's response to you, if you feel that you're not enough, that you're a nobody, is this. God is with those who fear him. God is with those who fear him. If you are insecure about who you are, God is with those who fear him. We move on down to Judges chapter 6, 25 to 27, and we encounter the second fear that Gideon has. God has now revealed himself to Gideon, and God is now going to ask Gideon to do something. He's not ready to take on the Midianites, but he is asking him to do something. So here's what he says. Judges 6, 25 to 27. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So God comes to Gideon and says, basically, tear down the family altar. Now, this is going to make the entire extended family mad. This is the epicenter of the family's worship. And God says, cut it down. And at this point, Gideon is thinking like so many of us, I am not qualified. He's a farmer. He's not a soldier. He's thinking when, as soon as God starts to ask him to do something, I am not qualified. And what does God say in verse 27? And what happens? So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. And I love that God has recorded that detail. Gideon decides, although I'm not qualified, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to cut down the pole. And I'm still afraid. God has not taken away that fear. So he goes and he does it at night. A couple months ago, in the bulletin, my wife and I were looking, and I saw this call, this invitation, to a short-term mission trip to Senegal. A group of women, Browncroft was assembling a group of women to go to Senegal. It's a place that we have a long-term partnership over 20 years with the people group, the Wolof, the most dominant group, and we've got some missionaries there, and Browncroft was sending a group of women. So I said to Julie, my wife, this seems like a great opportunity for you to go and be a part of this team that's going to minister to them. And right off the bat, Julie says, 
I'm not qualified. I'm a stay-at-home mom. This is a majority Muslim country that has very little respect for women. What am I going to do there? And so we went back and forth probably a couple of weeks until finally Julie said, you know what? I'm going to join this team and I'm going to see what God will do. And the setup of this team is that this team was going to work at a women's training center in San Luis, Senegal. And this women's training center is set up to teach women vocational skills. And so Muslim women come. They know it's a Christian school. They come, they learn the Bible, and they learn practical skills, and they go out into the world. And while they're doing that, we get to share the gospel with them. God knew ahead of time that Julie wasn't qualified. And if you look at what Julie did for that entire week and what she taught them, You'll see from this picture what it was. It's sewing. <laughs> see, God knew that she was not qualified when he called her. But five or six years ahead of time, he was already laying the bricks down. He was already preparing her to do that work. And so if you're in the room today and you're thinking, I am not qualified, God says to you, private faithfulness is a prerequisite for public usefulness. Private faithfulness is a prerequisite to public usefulness. When God calls us to act, even if there's no glamour, if there's no lights, there's no stages, we have to obey him. We have to be obedient and take small steps of obedience because private faithfulness is a prerequisite to public usefulness. The last fear in Gideon's story that really resonates with me is Gideon thinking, God does not have a plan for me. And I remember early on, as I had moved to the States and I was going to college at RIT, if anybody came up to me with doubts and said, I don't know what God is doing, where am I going to find a job, who am I going to marry, How will I, what will I do after school, I had a rock-solid argument for them, and I could tell them how God was working in their lives. I could see the pieces and how he had provided, but in my life, I couldn't see that. I never thought that God had a plan for me. God had a plan for the world, and God had a plan for every one of you, but God did not have a plan for me. That was my insecurity. And so as we read the next passage in Judges 7, 7 to 14, I want you to think, Gideon is up. He's going to go against 135,000 Midianites. He started when he called his clan to go after them with 22,000 people. God cuts it down to 10,000, and then God cuts it down to 300 men. And now God is saying, there's 135,000 of these guys. They're all over the land of Canaan. We're gonna, you're going to go attack. And God still has not told him how he will do it. And so Gideon is probably shaking in his boots, getting ready for battle with his 300 men, and his insecurity of God not giving him a plan is resonating with him. And this is what God does. Judges 7, 7 to 14. Then the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. And here's what God is doing. 
and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. The camel could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley, bread, came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And if you read the rest of the story, you'll know Gideon attacks with trumpets and jars of clay, and God is the one that wins the battle that day. You know, growing up in Jamaica, I can tell you this. If you want a cheap vacation to the Caribbean, the best month to go is September. Does anybody know why? It's hurricane season. <laughs> Buy trip insurance if you do it. In 1988, I lived through one of the worst hurricanes that the island had ever seen. And my house was built of concrete. It wasn't pretty, but it was rock solid. My neighbors and everybody else, their roof went flying. This hurricane was so crazy. Trees were falling down, roofs were flying, everything was going on. And I remember being in my house. And if you know anything about a hurricane, when a hurricane passes over a small island like this, it goes and it just ravages everything for a couple of hours. And then there's this 25 minutes called the eye of the hurricane where everything is calm. And you can open your door and you can go outside. And yes, it's wet and there's stuff all over the place and your neighbor's roof is in your yard and all the trees are down. There's 25 minutes of calm. And then, unpredictably, you don't know how long that's going to last, the second half of the hurricane comes. And that was the case. Now, those 25 minutes that we lived through were the most dangerous 25 minutes because that's when the looting and the stealing happens. That's when people use the opportunity to take whatever they can. And that was happening in my neighborhood. People were all around stealing stuff. Now, my dad, who was an avid farmer, had a massive backyard garden. Even to this day, he has a, a really good garden. And he just, anything he touched grew. And this hurricane just ravaged everything my dad had, except the coconuts. We had a coconut tree, about a dozen coconuts. And yes, the coconut tree fell down, but those coconuts are rock solid, and they were intact. So during the eye of the hurricane, those 25 minutes, my dad starts to suit up. And he puts on his rain gear, and he starts going out. And my mom is scared to death, because there's people outside stealing. And you don't know when this hurricane is going to come back. My dad is undeterred. He goes out, and he starts bringing in these coconuts two by two into the house. He goes back. He brings them out. And at the end, he puts down his last two coconuts and he's shutting up the door. And my mom said, is it worth it? Think of all the risk of going out and getting these coconuts. And I'll never forget what my dad said. He basically said to my mom and the rest of us, the reason why I went out and got those coconuts is because they are my coconuts. They belong to me and nobody's going to take my coconuts. And they had nothing to do with the coconuts. The coconuts had not deserved anything. And I believe it is the same with us and our relationship with God. See, the lesson here with Joshua and with those coconuts is this, that success 
is determined by God's power, not ours. God will win the battle for you simply because you are his coconut. And you have, none, you have done nothing. All you've done is fallen down off the tree. But God will come and rescue you because you are his coconut. And so as I reflect at Gideon's story, I think to myself, what did Gideon do that pleased God? I mean, he, wasn't a, he was a Jewish farmer, he wasn't qualified, and he was insecure, and he didn't have a plan. So what did he do that pleased God? And it shows up in Hebrews 11, verse 32. It says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through, here it is, faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. What did Gideon do that pleased God? He had faith. He was motivated not by fear, but by faith. And God did not take away his fear, but his faith overcame his fear. And so in God's economy, our greatest motivator as believers needs to be faith. And I believe that God isn't necessarily looking for courageous people. He's not. He would have done a lot better choosing other people other than Gideon or Moses or Joshua. I believe that God isn't looking for courageous people. He's looking for people that are willing to take small steps of obedience that eventually lead to faith. Small steps of obedience that eventually lead to faith. And so as we close today, let me ask you this. What is the Midian in your life? Is it a marriage that is hard for you, that you're struggling with? Is it raising kids? Is it a kid that's already left, that you're struggling with their life choices and where they're at? Is it a situation at work that you run from? Is it someone in your extended family? What is the Gideon in your life? What are the small steps that God is asking you to take out of obedience? Is it to show kindness at work to that person you have a difficult time with? If it's your kids that you're struggling with, is it that you pray every single night diligently for them? Even if you don't have the right words for them, you are praying for them. You are on your knees. Even if it's in the middle of the night and they don't see. What small acts of obedience are God, is God asking you to take that will lead to faith. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That is the story of Gideon. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the example of Gideon and the lesson that you've given us. And Lord, we just confess to you that sometimes our lives are ruled by fear. 
And there are hardships, Lord, in our lives that are very real. There are family members. There are situations at work. There are finances. There are marriages that are mountains, Lord, that we cannot climb and that we cannot move. And the fear of those things rule our lives. Would you, Lord, soften our hearts and strengthen our minds to take small steps of obedience, Lord, that will materialize into faith. Give us the faith, even the faith that we don't have, Lord. Give us the faith to move. Lord, we thank you for the example of Gideon, and we thank you, Lord, for moving in us today for worship and for the lesson. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have a great Sunday, guys.